Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Oh, come on, Gavin. England is not a software maker. They all be titled Bobs and Blodgets or something. Yes. The following podcast contains... Smooth, lascivious, salacious, outrageous. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you weren't totally stoked about a 32-bit preemptive multitasking architecture, at least when running only 32-bit protected mode applications, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 412. If you start me up, I'll never stop edition of the show. We talk about that time America got super excited about our computer's new operating system. Stay tuned. What the hell were you thinking podcast is brought to you by the Packard Bell 486DX2, the desktop for all your computing needs. Featuring the PowerPack system's local bus architecture, it incorporates a video graphics controller chip that runs at the same clock speed as the system's microprocessor, instead of the slower speed of the industry standard architecture bus. In addition, PowerPack incorporates a video accelerator into the graphics controller's chip. The system has 512 kilobytes of video memory, which can be expanded easily to one megabyte. Built for maximum capability, Packard Bell systems feature new system boards with 8 kilobytes of cache memory built into the central processor. The system's can accommodate an additional 32, 128, or 512 kilobytes of external cache memory. Packard Bell's new generation of 486 computers are designed to protect the user's investment. As your needs grow, you can upgrade your system rather than replace it. Welcome to the Microsoft Windows 95 Video Guide. This unique program will help teach you how to use many of the most important features of the new Windows 95 operating system. Our guide is separated into three sections. In section one, you'll get more than a few laughs as we present the world's first cyber sitcom, starring two of television's hottest comedy personalities, Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry. They'll be taking you on an adventure in computing that takes place in the office of Microsoft Chairman Bill Gates. Along the way, they meet a wacky bunch of propeller heads and are introduced to the top 25 features of Windows 95. The pace is fast and funny, but don't worry if you miss anything. One of the things that makes Generation X so different is that we were the first generation to grow up in the digital world. I was there 3,000 years ago. In the before time, everything is analog, which is probably why so many of us aging Xers are regressing by buying back analog things. It's on expanding my record collection. Millennials were the first generation raised on the internet. But we Gen Xers had to walk so millennials could uh, walk slightly faster because they they were still on dial-up. But now, now Gen Z can run. You ungrateful little shit. So, we saw it all from the Apple IIe to the Commodore 64, the first Macintoshes, then, then the IBM PC ubiquity, and of course, 
None of it was easy. It took work to be a computer nerd back in the 80s. Like, you had to know shit. Sucks to be you. You kids who could just pick up your phone and have it work have no idea the struggle it took to be a computer user back in the day. Yeah, they called it basic, meaning beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code. I mean, have you ever tried to do anything in basic? No, neither have I. Yeah, because every fucking time I tried to do something in basic, all I got was syntax error. Error, error, error. And I had no fucking clue what that error was, and frankly, I didn't care. I couldn't do anything this on this computer that I could do faster and easier with a whole lot less bitching with a piece of paper and a cassette deck. And even when computers got simpler, they were still not simple. Error 401 backslash backslash colon reset C drive. When I finally managed to figure out how to do simple DOS commands, it did get easier, but still not easy. Then I had a roommate move into my dorm and he had an Apple Macintosh. You've been staring out there all day. What are you doing? I'm trying to figure out which computer is the most powerful. Oh, that's easy. The one with the most memory. Megahertz, MIPS, you know. No, I don't think so. Here we go. I think the most powerful computer is the one that people actually use. Macintosh has the power to change the way you look at computers. That's not really a fair comparison. People like using the Mac. It was a simple, easy, intuitive interface, way more so than Windows 3.1, which I was familiar with. By all rights, I should be a Mac person. I mean, I'm a... He's a creative. But there's just one problem with using a Mac. The light bulbs doesn't like to play. <laughs> and if you used a Mac in the early 1990s, you will know that when it came to games, yeah. The answer, sadly, is not yes. So, I was locked up in the limbo so many other non-tech-savvy people were at the time, one in the simplicity of a Mac and the ubiquity of the PC. Fortunately for us, things were about to change. Which brings us to our show topic for this week, the release of Windows 1995. I see they really scraped the bottom of the barrel. Huh? Hey, they can't all be four-parters about OJ, okay? The story I'm going to tell isn't about the operating system, but about how people reacted to the debut of said operating systems. But I will, sadly, need to take a moment to explain why people were excited. It was the 90s. Exactly, and people were very excited about anything having to do with computers. So let me briefly explain what it was like before Windows 95 came along and simplified using the computer a little bit. In 1985, Microsoft released Windows, their first graphical user interface, meaning instead of typing out what you wanted the computer to do on a command line, you clicked an icon on the desktop. It was a giant leap forward in usability. Bill Gates and his company created this revolution in the computing, in computing using the time-honored way of American capitalism. They stole it from us. The us in this case being Xerox PARC, who created the first graphical user interface in 1973. Gates wasn't the first person to steal this idea from Xerox. That honor goes to a one Mr. Uh, Jobs, Steve Jobs. Who had incorporated his stolen ideas into the Apple Lisa, which did not end well for Steve. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. 
The Lisa was way ahead of its time in every way imaginable, especially its price tag, a whopping $10,000. That's over 30 grand in today's money. And this cost, cost Steve his, uh, <laughs> his jobs. Really, Dave? As the head of Apple. But Bill's theft turned out quite a bit differently. Windows 1.0 was not a great GUI, but uh, it was somewhat more reasonably priced at just $99. That's a little over $300 in today's money. This meant that many, many, many more people bought Windows than Lisa's. Apple came back with a Macintosh in their first mass market graphical user interface, but uh, even so, Macs were still rather more expensive than PCs, and Windows slowly and steadily pulled ahead until breaking big with the release of Windows 3 in the early 1990s. Windows 3.1, which is the dominant version for use in most of the early 90s, wasn't nearly as intuitive to use as Apple software. It still required the user to have a pretty extensive command of MS-DOS, the underlying programming language of all IBM PCs, if you wanted to do anything more than the most elementary of tasks on your PC. And if you wanted to upgrade your PC, say add more memory or a bigger hard drive or a video or sound card, you were going to need to understand some pretty complex programming, at least for the average user. Oh, and... If you wanted to add your system to a network, say, this new information superhighway thing people were talking about, well, you'd better bring in a nerdy teenager because you were not going to be able to do it yourself. All in all, Windows 3 was just good enough for people to use at work and almost good enough for people so inclined to use on their computers at home, which was becoming more and more of a thing. Now, Windows or Apple, they were not the only GUIs that you could use. There was also something called IBM OS two or one or two but it was os2 by the time that people actually heard of it never heard of it yeah don't feel bad it uh, it was never very popular i mean it was superior to windows in pretty much every way having many of the features windows wouldn't get until windows 95 hell microsoft even helped build os2 and which ibm advertised as better dos than dos and more windows than windows which was pretty much true Problem was, IBM OS 2 would only run on actual IBM hardware, meaning you couldn't install it on a computer unless you bought that computer from IBM. And the sh that ship of only buying com from computers from IBM had long since sailed because users had a long tradition of building their own systems, and Windows licensed their software to anyone who paid them the money. The most rewarding part was when he gave me my money. So OS 2 faded away into digital Valhalla, which in this case was running ATM machines until around 2007. By 1995, 39% of all American households had a computer in them. A remarkable market penetration for a barely 20-year-old invention. My parents, neither of whom are, were or are classic early adopters, had their first home PC in 19. 92. The Tandy 1000 SL system, less than $999 only at Radio Shack. Tandy's fine machines for more information on Tandy computers, see episode number 375. Plugs or? Plugs? Plugs? And of those home computers, 90% were personal computers, IBM PCs. Sorry for bogarting your Apple. And of those PCs, almost all of them were running some version of Windows. In 1992, just as Windows 3.1 was going to market, Microsoft began Project Chicago. Illinois? Illinois, like the state? The aim was to create the next version of Windows, both for corporate use, which became Windows NT, the slightly scaled down and therefore slightly cheaper version that would become Windows 95. What was Windows 95? 
Well, let me let Wikipedia sum it up for you. Quote, Windows 95 merged Microsoft's formerly separate MS-DOS and Microsoft Windows products and featured significant improvements over its predecessors, most notably in the graphical user interface and its simplified plug-and-play features. There were also major changes to the core components of the operating system, such as moving from a mainly cooperatively multitask 16-bit architecture to a 32-bit preemptive multitasking architecture, at least when running only 32-bit protected mode applications. Accompanied by an extensive marketing campaign, Windows 95 introduced numerous functions and features that were featured in later Windows versions and continue in modern variations to this day, such as the taskbar, notification area, and the start button. It's considered to be one of the biggest and most important products in personal computing history. Unquote. Rumors began to circulate through the trade magazines that Windows was working on a massive upgrade of its operating system. Which, I know, sounds utterly silly to modern ears. No one lost their shit when Windows 11 came out. In fact, a fair number of people groaned because when they heard that a new SOS was being released, that meant they were going to have to upgrade their computer because it's now almost certainly obsolete. You're asking me to work with equipment which is hardly very far ahead of stone knives and bearskins. But this was 1995 when we were riding the quest of a wave that was the computer revolution. And everything that beeped, whirred, and buzzed with a flashing light was new, exciting, and most of all, cool. People whom only a decade previous would have had their underwear wedged so tightly up their ass cheeks they could have flossed their back teeth with it by football players were now being hailed as the coolest motherfuckers on the block, and the pejorative nerd was now a badge of honor. And the crowds were cheering for them, not jeering at them. And most of all, nerds were making so much fucking money. And one of the side effects of nerds having so much money is that for the first time in their lives, they could throw a party and people would show up was nothing like what it was during high school when you would finally get a weekend with your parents out of town and you decided to throw a rager at your place and then it would just be you and the same five dweebs you always hung out with. Why couldn't we just play D&D? Which honestly is not what everyone wanted to do anyway, but no, 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 no. You wanted to try and be cool and have a party with a six-pack of beer your friend's older brother had been bribed to buy for you and then all of a sudden... The cool kids show up at your place with a keg and bottles of hard liquor, and most importantly... Girls, girls, girls. And before you know it, the house is the hottest party in town, the music is too loud, someone is fucking in your parents' bed. Not you. Not you. But someone is getting laid, and you think, just for a minute, that these people actually like you. But then the smoke alarm goes off because there's the fire in the bathroom, the cops are at the front door, and the cool kids are all disappearing, and you and the five dweebs are left to explain the destruction to your parents, who are now very pissed and disappointed because you were always such good kid. And therefore, you learn the valuable lesson that, uh... <gasps> I think they were never my friends. But you know what? When you're rich, money changes all of that. I mean, they're still not your friends, but girls will have sex with you. Which is probably why Bill Gates decided that the launch party for Windows 95 was going to be the rager he could never have in high school. 
Quoting from a 1995 article in The Guardian about the August 24th launch, where the subhead is literally, nerds wreak their billion-dollar revenge. Quote, The final scene of Bill Gates' real-life remake of Revenge of the Nerds was beamed across the world by satellite yesterday as the boyish-looking billionaire formally unveiled Windows 95, the world's first celebrity computer program. After three years of development, a year of delays, and months of the most intensive hype ever to attend a product launch, the bespectacled Microsoft chairman, complete with putting base and haircut, declared that the new operating system would unlock the potential of personal computing. The opening bars of the Rolling Stones Start Me Up borrowed by Microsoft for reportedly $8 million blared out across Microsoft's leapy campus outside Seattle as giant screens counted down the seconds to launch. Too mean. Sorry. Clearly, the nerd hate had not entirely subsided, at least as far as The Guardian was concerned. I looked, and admittedly, I'm not a greatest researcher, but I couldn't find a product launch event like this before the rollout of Windows 95. There had certainly been other product launches in history, they were, but they were usually at trade shows where a manufacturer would de debut new models and there was hype about them. But I couldn't find the type of hype even for, like, say, a new car, like, say, a DeLorean who knew how to manipulate the media that remotely compared to the staged event that was the Windows 95 launch party. Going back to the Guardian quote, the audience of 2,500 journalists and computer industry executives bust to the tent city erected on the playing fields where Microsofties take time out from their brain work to play softball roared as members of the team which created Windows 95 confided, their, <laughs> confided that their personal hygiene and dating had suffered while they worked on the project. Perhaps acknowledging that little about Windows 95 remains unsaid, Microsoft's PR disclosed that the development team had consumed an estimated 2,283,600 cups of coffee and over 4,850 pounds of popcorn while toiling over the new product. Mr. Gates 39 laid on hot air balloons, a Ferris wheel, and free food and coke to sustain the enthusiasm of anyone not intoxicated by the prospects of a smoother multitasking and being able to call computer files any name they want. He also enlisted late-night chat show host Jay Leno, who cracked that Windows 95 was so powerful that it can keep track of all the OJ alibis at once, unquote. Yeah. Yeah, just a few months into a stolen gig hosted tonight, so feckless company man and fawning lackey Jay Leno took the stage. Why don't you tell us how you really feel? Oh, trust me, someday I will get around to giving that smarmy little weasel the tear down he deserves, but for now... Let's just bask in some of Jay's patented patter. Windows has been ready to launch for months now. The launch event was going to happen originally in March. Then you heard about that whole silly little mix-up with the Justice Department. Oh, those wacky folks. They were refusing to give their okay. So Bill asked me to kind of step in, uh, go to Washington, trying to smooth things over again. That's why I was brought into the project. Yeah, that's Jay. That's Jay definitely taking credit for shit that he didn't do and probably cutting somebody else out that actually put the work in to get the job they wanted. Sorry. Let's continue. Come on up. Hi. Hi, what's your name? Julie. Julie, where do you work? Uh, Marysville. Oh, Marysville. Okay. And, uh, sir, your name is? Pete. Pete, how are you, Pete? Lovely outfit. Uh, are you single? <laughs> oh, Jay, Jay, because Pete is a pretty standard computer nerd and he's wearing an outfit that is a, it's a vest with CD-ROMs on it. Admittedly, admittedly, it's nerdy. <laughs> no, Jay, just go ahead and make fun of Pete and call him an unlovable loser because that's funny. Hi, how you doing? Hey, good. How are 
Can I uh, show you my mouse sometime? Joystick, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Jay could always elevate his general skeevy vibe by just barely opening his mouth. I just thought I'd pull them together so people can see These what... These are actual headlines from... Real headlines! Wow. <laughs> Amazing. There you go. Two different things that are going on today. And of course, OJ had a comment. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, of course, Jay had to incorporate his famous headlines. Oh, the joke, which obviously you couldn't see in this audio product, was O.J. Simpson says Windows 95 fits like a glove. Oh, Jay, you are so clever. Oh, yes, such great highbrow humor, Mr. Leno. How can I describe the entire Leno presentation other than with John Oliver's cool? At least I credit the people I steal my jokes from, Jay. Then, of course, there was the song. Start Me Up, which is a good Rolling Stones song, particularly as it came so late in the career. It is 1981, but... When you spend more than a couple of minutes thinking about the lyrics like, I've been running hot, you've got me wrecking, gonna blow my top, and you make a grown man cry, you see one. This song, it's about fucking, and kind of a strange choice for a multi-million dollar computer product. And two, it's a pretty accurate description of how using Windows 95 made one feel trying to get everything to work like it was supposed to. Blue screen of death again. So why was it chosen? The start button. Yeah. Quoting from The Verge, quote, It was a huge day for Microsoft and TV commercials blasting the Rolling Stones. Start me up with the images of the new start button that we're still just about using today, unquote. Before that button, all your applications were all on your desktop. Clustered in boxes of associated programs would make them hard to find. And if your program was not natively part of Windows, it might not even have a desktop icon, meaning you had to open it with a DOS prompt. Why are you telling us this? Because life was hard back then, okay? What I'm trying to say is the start button was a huge selling port for Windows 95 and Microsoft. And Microsoft's choice of a stone song about fucking let you know about how great it was. And it ran constantly in commercials. Rumors had it that Microsoft paid anywhere between 8 and $12 million to the Rolling Stones for the song, who had never until that time licensed a song for a commercial. Now, this number is exaggerated because they only paid $3 million for the song, which, even still, if you're going to sell out as a rock band, it's a pretty nice payday for selling out. And of course, it wasn't just the party. I mean, it wasn't just for the people there at the Microsoft campus in Redmond. Microsoft had launched a full-on ad blitz for Windows 95, including the hottest new stars in the TV firmament, Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry. I guess David Swimmer was too nerdy even for Bill Gates. And the two starred in an hour-long sitcom that was about Windows 95. So, this is where the magic happens, huh? The ground zero personal computing. The nerve center of the world's biggest software company. I mean, the atmosphere resonates with anticipation of mythical achievement. A mythical achievement right now would be an unshoed number two pencil. 
Honey, we'll nosh soon, but if you want the job, spend some time looking at Windows 95. Again, from John Oliver, cool. The PR Blitz, of course, had the intended effect as people by the hundreds lined up outside of CompUSAs and Circuit Cities who had stayed open late for the midnight release. And not just in America. This was a worldwide phenomenon. Well, the Western world, anyway. I'm fairly certain that Maasai tribesmen in Tanzania didn't line up at midnight outside the computer tent. They probably waited for a couple of weeks just to see if Microsoft had worked all the bugs out. But definitely in white people land, people were lined up. Reuters was there to cover the release as it was first coming available. In uh, New Zealand. Indeed, taken from a Business Insider article about the 20th anniversary, quote, 19-year-old Jonathan Prentice of Auckland, who is claimed to be the first person in the world to purchase Microsoft Windows 95 software, is pictured shortly after midnight in the early morning of August 24th in Auckland. New Zealanders were the first people to purchase the most anticipated product in computer personal computer history as they were first to reach the August 24th release date, unquote. And as of this recording... Jonathan is still waiting for the installation to be complete as his screen has locked up reading installing do not turn off computer. Here in the States, the AP picks up the story, quote, Paul Galuskin, 11 of Rutherford, New Jersey, waits in line to buy copies of Windows 95 after the software program went on sale shortly after midnight at the CompUSA store in Midtown, New York, Thursday, August 24, 1995. Stores stayed open after midnight to accommodate customers who couldn't wait till the morning to buy the new software, unquote. And this is with a photo of young Paul holding five copies of Windows 95, which would set his dad back a cool 500, 500 bucks at the time. Did, did Paul have five computers back at home? Or did he think they'd be like comic books collectible someday? I mean, sadly, the AP did not provide the answers because even back in 1995, the news media did not ask the hard-hitting questions and just ran with a puff piece. A 1995 article in the Tampa Bay Times picks up the story, quote, At CompUSA, Computer City, Egghead Software, and other area stores, retailers have been taking reservations at $90 a pop for Windows 95 in anticipation of its official debut, 12.01 a.m. Thursday, August 24th. The only thing I can liken Windows 95 to is the Cabbage Patch doll, said CompUSA's James Halpin, chief executive of the nation's largest PC retailer and a former toy merchant. The Cabbage Patch doll sparked a buying frenzy in the late 1980s. See episode 389. And when was the last time a computer product inspired an electronic superstar, the incredible universe store in Dallas, to throw a party complete with a best-dressed computer nerd contest, or in Britain, farm fields to be painted with the Windows 95 logo, while a barge holding a 40-foot recreation of the software package was towed down the harbor at Sydney, Australia, unquote. And on top of that, the Empire State Building was lit up in the Windows colors, and the CN Tower in Toronto hung a 330-foot Windows 95 Banner down from the top. Canada. Canada. So you're asking me, did all of this hype work? Oh, pod friends, you already know that it did. Windows 95 was the thing computers ran on. It was an incredible success for Microsoft. A million copies shipped in the first four days of its release. By 1998, nearly 60% of all desktop PCs ran Windows 95, with most of the rest running Windows 98 or running Windows 3.1, which still sold over a million units that year. 95 would be the dominant OS until Windows XP launched in 2001, 
to considerable fanfare, though it wasn't even close to the frenzy over 95. I hear that the only star from Friends they could get to be in the video for Windows XP was Marcel the Monkey. Microsoft would never again capture the zeitgeist like it did with Windows 95. While making everyone involved extremely rich, Microsoft became mired in antitrust lawsuits over Internet Explorer and fell behind the curve of Internet adaptation and was viewed as rather pedestrian by everyone, even as they continued to use the software because it worked most of the time. And it would take well into the 2010s before the blue screens of death became rare enough not to even be memeable. Also, this other little tech company stole the thunder of Microsoft for releasing cool new things that people lined up for in the middle of the night to buy. Steve Jobs, techno-visionary. Who saw what Bill Gates had done and took it to the next level. But that is a story for another day. Now, I personally was not one of the people who waited online at midnight to get my copies of Windows 95. I bought mine a few weeks later. But I admit, the hype had gotten to me, so I plunked down my 90 bucks and took home a copy. And of course, my dumbass somehow wound up with a floppy disk version instead of the CD-ROM, so I spent about five hours inserting 15 three-and-a-half-inch discs one at a time during the install. And while I waited through the endless update cycles, and when it was all over, I was running Windows 95. And as I stared at that screen and thought to myself, Welcome to the future! I realized that my life had not changed dramatically for the better. All I had was a start button. And that was fine, but it was hardly the revolution in computer technology that the commercials had promised. Windows still crashed just about as often as it did before, probably more. And what was worse, I was now locked into the endless upgrade cycle of needing newer, faster, better computers to unlock the amazing innovations that were always just around the corner, whether it be Windows 98, or Windows ME, or Windows 2000 Home Edition, or Windows XP, Windows 7, Windows 8, and finally Windows 10, which I am using now, though I'm regularly told by my computer that I really should be running Windows 11, but you see, my computer is shitty, and it's not strong enough to handle the manliness that is Windows 11, so I should probably spend several hundred dollars to buy a whole new computer, unless, of course, I am just a weak-ass girly man who... But, yeah, hey, that's, that's capitalism for you. And fortunately for most of us, we, we realized that we didn't really need the latest version of whatever the fuck Silicon Valley is trying to sell us, especially when it came to operating systems. And the tech companies have figured that out, too. Even Apple doesn't shove a new iPhone down our throats like they used to. They know we figured out their game. So instead... They're all trying to sell us on these big fucking goggles we wear on our face so they can push advertising content directly into our retinas wherever we go. And I guess eventually someone, <laughs> and I used to think that someone would be Elon Musk, but yeah, not so much anymore, but someone will come up with a device that they'll just shove in our brains so the tech moguls can beam commercials for Crocs straight into our cerebral cortex. Probably for with a U2 song that we didn't ask for and we definitely didn't want. And only then will software upgrades finally become obsolete. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> that is it for the show this week. I thought we'd do something light after the big summer series. And frankly, this topic is so light, it is generating reverse gravity and actively pushing listeners away from the show. Speaking of pushing people away, rate and review the show so that people can find your reviews and be pushed away from you by your awful taste in podcast. Now, if you want to drop us a dollar so we can pay for our next Windows upgrade, hit us up at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast and you need to do all the things jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits otherwise he'll force your podcast app to blue screen of death and you will need to reboot your entire phone and so for me dave come to my window bledsoe producer crawl inside wait by the light of the moon well that just sounds somewhat illegal gavin and all the fictional os2 warp users on this show we want to say how 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 did this song not be the choice for Microsoft. I mean, it came out of nine in '93, and it mentions Windows right in the title. Is it because the sex is lesbian sex? Oh, yeah, that's that's probably it. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Release the robotic Richard Simmons.